Welcome to Better Off Red. Hey, I'm Danny Catch. I'm Jen Rush. I'm Eric Ruder. We have a great episode today. It's all about the border, the migrant caravan, and the politics of solidarity on both sides of the border. We're very excited about it. In our opening segment, uh, we're going to talk to activists on both sides of the border who have been working with the migrant caravan to organize solidarity and talk about the conditions that they've seen. Claire Douglas is a teacher and member of the International Socialist Organization in San Diego, and she has been active in organizing solidarity, including a demonstrate helping to organize a demonstration on November 25th as part of an international day of action and solidarity. Fermin Valle is a queer Mexican-American activist raised on the south side of Chicago. He's currently an ISO organizer who traveled recently to Mexico City and was able to meet with a group of migrants who'd been traveling with the caravan and had taken refuge in the church and trying to get their message out to the world. And he's going to talk about what his conversations were like. And Joe Morales is an anti-border activist and writer who's worked in solidarity with refugees and Syrian revolutionaries in Greece and the Mediterranean for the last three years. And she's now in Tijuana, Mexico, where she is documenting the migrant exodus. And while Claire was organizing on the San Diego side of the border, Joe was on the Tijuana side of the border, also on November 25th, when the U.S. Border Patrol tear gassed a large group of migrants. Yeah, and and when you hear Joe's description of what that looked like, things that haven't made their way into the mainstream news, it's pretty shocking. I'm just going to add right now, we've had incredible coverage of this also in Socialist Worker, including an article by Fermin, and, you know, as well as articles about the San Diego and Tijuana um, uh, events. And so we'll be linking to that in our show notes. The second part of our of this episode is then we're going to be talking to our who's now the person who's now our most frequent guest Justin <laughs> Akers Chacon who's the author of both No One Is Illegal and Radicals in the Barrio and we're going to be talking to him he wrote an article recently in Socialist Worker in response to a piece by Angela Nagel called The Left Case Against Open Borders which has raised it's done its job it's gotten a lot of attention and clicks and gotten her guest spots on Fox News and stuff like that but Justin wrote a really important uh, takedown of it that it, because I think that this, this argument Nagel raised has actually it's a, it's a major issue on the left, as, as we've covered in previous episodes. So we've conversation with him, sort of taking on some of the myths um, that are raised in that in that uh, article. So stick around. Hijo, aquí va mi crítica. Con la primera te di tan duro que en tu segundo intento te puse a hablar de política. Luego de esta me meten al manicomio y no son chistes por estar tirándole algo que ya no existe. Soy lo que todavía no entendiste. Sin varita mágica ni abracadabra, solo con palabras desapareciste. No es que yo sea inteligente, es que tú eres idiota. Por eso los que te siguen escriben gente con J. Un reggaetonero que no sabe dónde queda el horizonte y que piensa que en el Everest hay rinoceronte. Eres tan animal que todavía... All right, so we're back with Joe, Fermín, and Claire. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Great. So we want to just start right in, Fermin, uh, asking you about uh, your experience with the caravanistas in Mexico City. You wrote a Socialist Worker article about it, and we'll link to that in our show notes. But, you know, maybe you could start by telling us about what people on the caravan told you about their journey, why they're making the trip, why they're doing it now, the conditions along the way, those, those sorts of things. Yeah. So I guess I'll start off with... Um, 
when I went down to Mexico City, it was on November 20th, um, a Tuesday. I had heard that some of the caravans that had been arriving were taking refuge at a large church. So I went into the church. Um, I was able to speak to about 35 of them who were in the refuge as part of, at the time, it was kind of in flux, the amount of people that were taking refuge. At its high point, it was over a thousand. When I was there, it was down to about 700. And about 35 of them came out. We had an impromptu meeting, but it was really kicked off by a conversation I was beginning to have with a woman, um, a woman, um, Daniela, who was telling me why she decided to take the journey to, um, to, to leave her country and participate as part of the caravan. Um, she had begun to tell me about the gang of violence that existed throughout her country in El Salvador. Uh, the fact that she had been un unable to find work because a lot of the companies or a lot of the a lot of Salvadorians were losing their jobs as their jobs um, could no longer compete with um, sort of the the um, the competition that CAFTA was really like shaping the economy in the region. And she began to tell me that her daughter recently got accepted to a university in El Salvador and that she had dreams for her daughter to go to this college, but that they couldn't afford to pay for the college unless she found a place to work. And staying in El Salvador was not going to be an option for her. And she knew that she couldn't travel before because she was vulnerable to, as a woman, to sexual violence that exists throughout anyone, any woman that makes a journey to leave her country to find a place or a place to work, right? There's a lot of people that offer you an ability to travel, to get across the border, to traffic you. And oftentimes that is a dangerous situation, she said, for a woman um, on her own. So she wanted to travel with the caravan because traveling with women would allow her some safety um, and would it mean that when she would it be able to get to the U.S. border, hopefully with a lot more people and support, they could find an easier means to seek um, asylum, find work, get their their case heard about what they're fleeing. Um, and she I think in talking to her. Um, that's when others in the refuge had caught wind that I had been talking to her and she was telling me her story and that I was from the U.S. and that I could report back to the U.S. what was taking place down here. And that's when about 35 of them all came out. They all listened. And then we had an impromptu meeting where um, more shared their stories and we discussed so much um, throughout throughout that exchange. Um, Another story I guess I'll talk to you after the meeting was over was about Eduardo, who told me that um, his journey actually began with the midst of the Civil War in 1988 in El Salvador, um, a war that uh, throughout the course of it, the U.S. had funded $4.5 billion in economic aid. It had trained many um, of the soldiers who were involved in it and was propping up support for the El Salvadorian government against um, the left-wing coalition of forces um, that, you know, exploded onto the scene with that left around 80,000 civilian lives taken. 
Um, and he was fleeing that situation 30 years ago and was able to find work here in the U.S., has had a work visa and has it renewed and has always had it renewed for about 30 years. Um, he had been living in the U.S. And then he decided to take vacation and go out to Canada under the Trump administration and in trying to get back at the border, he was immediately um, um, Heiss immediately came to grab him. They physically beat him and attack him, threw him um, in some kind of a jail. And then within two weeks, he was deported back to El Salvador. And throughout that, he was told that he was being charged with assault and battery on a federal agent, an ICE agent, and resisting arrest. And since then, he had been trying to go back through the caravan um, um, because when he had gotten back, the situation was a violent one with a lot of cartels and violence um, and all those things. And so it's wild to see sort of like 30 years of economic and military aid and intervention that the U.S. has played in El Salvador in particular, not even to speak of the entire region, because really after the Civil War, both there was so many deaths on both the government side and the side of the resistance that it left a vacuum for a lot of gangs, cartels, and all these other groups mm -hmm. to be able to come in and actually contend for power in that type of a situation, which is the, the so it's not only the, the, the actual violence from the gangs that these people are often fleeing. And these are just two stories, right? Right. right. I mean, that with the 35, all of them were pretty unanimous that gang violence and economic devastation and poverty and unemployment is what became unbearable. And as soon as they heard on the news that people were going to be meeting in the capital of San Salvador, it was clear that a small group just exploded in size. And by the time you know, you have a thousand people that are ready to leave and chase a better dream for themselves to feed their families, to find work, to send their kids to school for medicine and and all those things. Um, so those were some kind of some of the stories that came out right. and and the way they were able to either draw the connections directly from U.S. intervention or make it pretty easy for me to understand the kind of violence that they were fleeing and the role that the U.S. played in all of that. So you're. You've talked a lot about the situation that migrants are coming from and the role that the U.S. has played in that. Obviously, one of the dimensions of this is that the caravan is traveling through multiple countries. And right now, the whole question of Mexico and what the Mexican government's response has been and is going to be is very much in the media. Um, Joe, you've also been in Mexico City um, with the caravan. Could you talk a little bit about how you would characterize the response of the Mexican authorities to the caravan? In Mexico City? Yeah, um, the Mexican authorities' response has been varied, um, uh, and that has really depended on the size of the group that they're addressing or um, how much media is covering it. So at the southern border of Mexico, there has been a lot of violence and deportations of groups of people who are traveling through. Um, these are like different groups of a, a larger exodus. Uh, you're looking at 10 to 15,000 people who are fleeing a, all within about two months. And the members of these traveling groups are calling it a, a migrant exodus themselves because it, it looks different on the ground than previous caravans have, both in numbers and the way it's organizing. 
Um, the Mexican government um, was responsible for a death at the southern U at the southern Mexican border um, a few weeks ago, and it also recently. Uh, about less than a week ago, rounded up 500 people in a deportation raid in Chiapas. Um, contrasted with that is the response that happened in Mexico City when um, the first caravan, so the first group of people of this exodus arrived in Mexico City, when the Mexican government, federal and, and local, um, set up tents, provided aid, brought in large NGOs, um, had press covering that there was everything from massages to free haircuts, food, um, separate bathrooms and showers for women, children, members of the LGBTQ community. Um, within a few days, that was already being removed by the Mexican authorities. When I arrived on November 12th, um, those supplies had already been removed. And this was about three to four days after people arrived in Mexico City. Um, then within a few days, the large tents were removed from the stadium in Mexico City. Uh, people were moved into shelters, mostly run by churches. Um, and other people continued on their journeys with the goal of reaching Tijuana to try to pass to the uh, pass the border to get to the United States. But many people haven't actually reached Tijuana. They've remained in other states in Mexico because they're um, aware of the conditions, um, the living conditions for migrating people in Tijuana. And they're also aware of the violence of the Mexican authorities and the U.S. authorities. Um, there's also the response in Tijuana. Um, which uh, has been that the federal government has not responded. Um, the local Tijuana government has um, placed people in a so-called shelter, which they did not do for Haitian refugees in the past, for example. However, this shelter is not a shelter. It's literally not a shelter. There's no roof. There's no shelter to, to actually call it one. Um, people are sleeping on dirt and mud. Uh, they're sleeping on top of plastic trash bags or nylon tarps. Um, there's no uh, safe area or separate bathrooms um, for women, children, LGBTQ people. Um, the portable toilets are right next to the showers. There's flooding and contaminated water. Um, the the entire area, um, it it. it the entire area smells from the contaminated water and from the lack of sanitation. Um, people will have to shower out in the open in the way that you would have open showers, like at a beach for a surfer to rinse off. Um, but this is where people are living. Um, there are between six to 8,000 people from the migrant exodus in Tijuana right now, according to Mexican authorities. Not all of those people are in the sports complex. Uh, Benito Juarez here. Um, in, there's at least 1,000 people that are inside that so-called shelter, in, inside that camp. Um, and the authorities have started restricting uh, access to that camp. Uh, my first few days here, I was able to enter and leave. And now um, there's a restriction of who can enter. And even people who um, look like they're Central American are being asked for wristbands at the entrance in order to enter. 
between what Fermina's just said and what you've said, it's kind of a fairly kind of dire picture, I think, of the conditions facing people along the way. And it also seems somewhat of a conscious decision to make it so because the Mexican authorities are, are in collaboration with, you know, the Trump administration trying to discourage people from coming. And so that the more that the word gets out that, oh, it's atrocious there in Tijuana, um, clearly they're trying to discourage people from making this journey. Um, and I, I just wanted to then to bring in Claire to kind of talk about what the situation on the U.S. side looks like. I know, Claire, you have been involved along with members of the International Socialist Organization there and, and other groups, pro-immigrant uh, rights organizations and so forth, and trying to organize solidarity efforts to, you know, to push back against, again, this kind of hostile climate that um, has been created um, on both sides of the border um, in, the, in the face of this. Maybe you could talk some about what that has looked like. Yeah, so, um, you know, for the past two months or maybe six to eight weeks or so, I think the left sort of felt like it was in a holding pattern. Um, it wasn't really clear. There was a lot of unknowns. Um, where was the caravan going to arrive? Would it be uh, Matemoros, uh, Brownsville, or Tijuana, San Diego? Hmm. Um, how long would it take? Would it be a matter of weeks? Would it be a matter of months? Would we be looking at them arriving in December? Um, so two weeks ago, the LGBT contingent um, that had kind of sort of arrived um, ahead of everyone else, given their particular needs, um, uh, made their way uh, to the border. But little did we know, just a couple days later, there would be um, 4,000 others, was it, I think? Uh, Joe, you might have better numbers um, just a couple days later. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I think that it all sort of happened incredibly rapidly and in, in almost what sort of felt spontaneously, um, uh, a group called um, uh, Pueblos Sin Fronteras here in San Diego and their sister organization, Otay Mesa Detention Resistance, called for an initiating organizing meeting. Um, both of these groups uh, have uh, done incredible work providing direct aid on both sides of the border. So food and clothing donations, legal support, uh, transitional services for migrants released from the Otay Mesa Detention Center. Um, but um, with uh, the arrival of these large segments, and I think uh, Joe is totally right, what folks are saying um, on the other side of the border is totally right, but this really being an exodus, um, uh, I think it made it clear to folks um, uh, who had been doing a lot of this direct work for aid work for so long, the, the really the limitations of legal, medical, and material support are when Trump uh, Peña Nieto, CBP, uh, Mexican Federal Police can just flex uh, state power um, and uh, change the legal parameters, um, severely limit, um, you know, uh, limit what's possible. So um, I think it sort of made sense to a lot of these groups that it was time to sort of um, what was needed was a um, uh, what was needed was to sort of organize um, and demonstrate the mass sentiment uh, that was actually in support. Um, what was needed was uh, the sort of organizing that happened around uh, family separations, that happened around the Muslim travel ban, that this sort of pressure from below was the only thing that was gonna force Trump, force Peña Nieto, uh, force all of these uh, state actors to actually um, uh, follow through with international law at the very least. 
Um, and so uh, we got together, we um, uh, uh, put together a, a statement of call for an International Day of Action on the 25th um, uh, with a set of demands that came from the caravan itself, um, mostly around, uh, you know, the demand that uh, international law be uh, recognized. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we only had five days, but, um, you know, Dozens and dozens of organizations signed on. There were 13 demonstrations um, around the country. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it was really critical that it happened, um, especially when it did, given um, the sort of the terrible, disgusting attack by the Trump administration um, against uh, the the march that uh, the caravanners took that day um, uh, on the Tijuana side. As you said, Claire, you were talking about the you guys were organizing on one side of the border. There's this demonstration of like 500 to 1000 people on the U.S. side of the border. And then, Joe, you were on the Tijuana side of the border the days leading up to the attempt at a mass crossing on Sunday, November 25th, while the demonstration was going on, which is when the U.S. Border Patrol responded with tear gas. I think we've seen a lot of the images come out around that. Um, what led to the attempt to cross that day? And can you sort of describe the scene as you witnessed it and what the aftermath has been like? The conditions of the camp and people losing hope and sleeping out completely exposed to rain and getting sicker and sicker is the major catalyst to the organizing at the border. There was a smaller protest uh, or a smaller gathering at the border on Thursday before the Sunday demonstration. And uh, that was about 200 people who um, in smaller groups gathered at the Chaparral crossing, as it's known, um, which is one of the uh, crossings between Tijuana one of the border crossings between Tijuana and San Isidro. Um, the, the protest on Sunday was more people uh, demonstrating at the border and gathering at the border than it was an attempt at a mass crossing. Uh, people gathered at the albergue, at the shelter, where um, people are sleeping out in the open and uh, in bad conditions. They walked in the hundreds towards the Chaparral crossing. The federales, the federal police, blocked the entrance to the bridge, which would lead them to the um, pedestrian crossing. 
People demonstrated there for at least 20 minutes, shouting slogans, uh, filming the protest, giving interviews, holding banners, um, asking for a dialogue, asking um, for answers from both governments, the U.S. and Mexican, on asylum. Then they just, when they realized that the federales were not going to allow them to cross the bridge, they diverted and went around the bridge. At first, the federales blocked that, but then the federales um, yielded and allowed people to um, head through and underneath the bridge. From there, there were different groups that um, gathered in different points of this crossing. Um, it was about 500 people in total. I was at um, one area, which is a cement uh, flood basin. People um, rushed the flood basin, ran down and up. Some people stayed in the flood basin and went up to a fence with the U.S. border there. Other people were gathered at the wall and next to the pedestrian crossing, which is kind of like a labyrinth, um, which people were passing through. Um, people gathered um, at the top of the uh, flood basin. Um, people were gathered there from my side. I did not witness anybody trying to cross the fence. I didn't see any provocations. I didn't see any violence. I didn't see anybody throwing rocks. I didn't see any bottles thrown. Um, people that I talked to, human rights observers, uh, journalists, people who were part of the exodus, um, Mexican people who joined, um, activists, uh, international Mexican uh, nationals, Nobody saw this violence that the press and the U.S. government and the Border Patrol have reported. Um, suddenly, the U.S. side uh, fired tear gas into um, grew a group of about 300 people. Wow. Um, it was women, children, disabled people, elderly, babies, families. Uh, the tear gas canisters were about the size of uh, spray paint cans. Uh, some people were injured from the canisters hitting them. There were rubber bullets. Uh, I saw one uh, man who's a Mexican activist for refugees rights who was injured in the head and bleeding. He had to run to an ambulance and got medical attention. Another photographer was hit in the head and bleeding. An eight-year-old girl um, who was part of the caravan was injured by a tear gas canister. Um, uh, when I was fleeing the tear gas, there was a woman who was in unconscious who was being carried by um, men um, and um, babies were suffocating. Oh um, it we had four helicopters passing overhead, including military grade helicopters, three drones. Um, they uh, were circling around us um, for hours. The first tier gas uh, attack was the, it was completely unannounced. There was no warning. Uh, people fled. Some people went back to the shelters and other areas. Um, and then people felt trapped because there were federales um, uh, on another side. There were helicopters circling overhead. There were drones passing over our heads. And the tear gas continued for a few hours, not constantly, but intermittently. Mm. It was one of the most militarized attacks I've ever seen. Wow. And you've you've been to a number of refugee camps and places. I mean, so one question is, we have this organizing happening on the U.S. side of the border in solidarity. We have this attack taking place. I know, Fermin, you had 
been maintained contact with the migrants on the caravan who were in Mexico City. And one of the things that they had talked to you about initially was not knowing about the solidarity efforts and trying to get information in order to figure out next steps. What's been the impact of this on the people you've maintained contact with? Right. So a lot of people that haven't yet made it up to the border and are taking refuge are really trying to follow as closely as possible the events happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. They're well aware of sort of uh, the tear gassing. They're well aware of the violence being inflicted by the cartels to a group of people that are vulnerable. They're aware that they're losing support from the Mexican people who are buying into these xenophobic really lies about them as ungrateful and criminal. Um, they're, they're really well aware of, of a lot of the dynamics, including the fact that there's right-wing armed groups that had anticipated or had said that they would come out and meet them at the border on the U.S. side. And so it's really creating um, a, a really scary situation for them and saying, if this is what's going on in Tijuana, if this is what the situation looks like, I would prefer to not go to Tijuana. And if there indeed is solidarity in the U.S. being organized, which they had no clue there was, where is this solidarity going to show up? Where is it going to be the largest, the most visible? Because that would be the city that everybody would prefer to go to. What part of the border will be will we be received, not necessarily with all the violence, or not only with all the violence, but the broadest possible support from the side of the U.S. to putting pressure on everybody to really follow um, international law, to think about safety of the people, to get court hearing, all those things. Um, and that they said that the that the question for them that was in what part of the border is the solidarity going to arrive? Um, and that if at any moment I knew what that location was or I could help influence, um, that they would need to know ASAP. But for now, because of the violence, some of them, about 100 of them, had agreed to turn themselves in to Mexican authorities openly to be deported because in their mind, they were walking into a lot of the similar type of violence that they were fleeing from their own country. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that were there we're sort of openly talking about, but for us, it's whereas if they return to their country, it's guaranteed violence, whereas they keep trekking to the border, there's at least an element of hope that mm. the situation at the border could change and that there could be enough solidarity that by the time they arrive and get there, that the situation will have improved. So um, I, I wanted to turn to Claire to ask about because um, in the aftermath of that tear gas attack, the U.S. authorities closed this border right. crossing to all traffic in both directions. I think it's the first I don't know how long it's been since that border was closed, but it's the most heavily trafficked border in the world. Um, yeah. And um, I, I wondered if you could speak to the what kind of impact that had on people's lives, because as part of being the most trafficked border and the way in which communities all along that border kind of quite organically spill across both sides mm -hmm. of it. It seems like a really disruptive um, uh, moment in people's lives um, and, and their ability to just carry on with day-to-day -day business. Maybe you could speak some about what that looked like and some of the ramifications. Yeah. 
so many people cross that border every day uh, to get to work. Um, they live on in Tijuana because they can't afford the rent or they um, their families are of mixed status. Maybe they have a partner who's a recent deportee or parents who are recent deportees. Um, you know, uh, that it's uh, on a normal day when Trump isn't closing the border. Um, I know some of my colleagues at the school that I work with um, can't get to work because uh, there was a holdup at the border for hours. Um, maybe they didn't have a century pass or even if they did have a century pass, something something went askewed. Um, and so then also their children don't get to go to school. Right. Um, so like uh, this border is. Um, extremely disruptive and it like naturally sort of makes uh, it uh, clearly demonstrates to people here um, why Trump is the enemy, <laughs> uh, why uh, American immigration policy is the enemy. Um, but unfortunately, because Trump's rhetoric has gone so unquestioned by the supposed resistance, um, uh, you don't have the the, you know, the U.S. media, Trump, the Mexican media um, is able to sort of in an unquestioned fashion sort of blame everything that's happening um, on the migrants. Right. The migrants not being grateful for the food that they're being given. Um, uh, uh, fo totally bogus videos of of migrants throwing clothes out, um, which actually or like footage from Spain um, that, you know, we, we know that story of fake news being created, um, um, being used against uh, oppressed people um, to make them look like uh, the, the demons in every story. Um, and so, so I think that that's sort of why um, it is so absolutely critical, right, that we, um, you know, the, the Sunday was was wonderful, you know, um, hundreds of people in, in in many, many different cities demonstrating. But um, we actually in order to really flip the script, in order to, like, make the political shifts necessary, we need to see see something like tens of thousands of people in the streets. Right. We need we need the the. We need the endorsement and the financial support of our unions of faith based organizations. We need them all out kind of leading these struggles. So. So, yeah. We're coming to a close, but I think that this point you're talking about, Claire, about how do we take this from the sort of initial efforts to a broad scale movement, which is like, I just feel like listening to you guys, like listening to Fermin, listening to Joe, the conditions, the illness, the the sense of this is not a static situation. This is a situation that's developing and people are making choices based partially on what is built here in terms of solidarity just raises the stakes so high. I mean, one question, Claire, the coalition in San Diego that has begun to organize and organize the November 25th protest, um, I know is continuing to meet. Is there like a website or a Facebook page that people can follow in order to sort of hook up with some of those efforts? Yeah, um, they can find the Facebook page, uh, Migrant and Refugee Solidarity Coalition. Um, it's the, it's the, it's the at SDMRSC. Um, and there we'll, we'll link to the it in the show notes too. What's that? We'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes so people oh, can find oh, perfect. it. Yeah. Um, and then also, um, uh, there you can find, uh, the, uh, uh, call to action solidarity statement with the list of demands that we had for November 25th, um, that, you know, I can't speak for the coalition, but, you know, I think kind of provides a pretty good, you know, foundation for how to start to build some of the solidarity work nationally. 
Fantastic. Yeah. And, and Joe and Fermina, is there, are there any last, are there any last suggestions you want to make about how people can actively engage in solidarity efforts, what people are in need of and what people are looking for um, in a, beyond what you've already said, which was already actually quite helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll jump in and say that in the years since Trump's been elected, we've seen some of the largest demonstrations and protests in U.S. history. We've also seen the fascists and the right wing come out, that these are the same people who are supporting Trump, who are fueled by Trump, who have come. These are the same people that are latching on and spreading the lies about the immigrants as criminals, right, as um as ungrateful as uncivilized and whatnot. And so I think groups in the last two years that have organized any type of resistance against Trump, if you've organized a march, a demonstration, a protest, a coalition meeting, a branch meeting with whatever organizations you've worked with in the past two years to resist Trump, these are the groups that we want to reach out to and say, look, we need, we have a situation at the border that the entire world is watching. Mm-hmm. We need to leverage the history that we have in the relationships that we've built to fight the fascists, to fight the racists, the xenophobes, to go down to the, the women's march. And now we need to figure out how in our locale, we're going to be building solidarity with the migrant caravan, how we're going to get more people out to the U.S. border. Here in Western Massachusetts, we've begun to reach out to some of the groups we've reached out in the past two years to organize some of these solidarity activities under Trump or solidarity protests. And we're beginning to cohere groups and unions, student groups who you know, are um, open to really wanting to build solidarity with the caravan. Um, and right now we're trying to figure out how we can get a contingent of us down to the border and then trying to use me as an avenue to communicate to the groups out here as I connect with others in New York and across the country who are also down there. And I read reports. Um, where are we sending our group of folks from this area down to the border as other groups who are convening are deciding what side of the border they're going to be um, uniting around? Um, And so I think that's kind of going forward, making the broadest possible efforts to bring the largest numbers of groups together, um, casting the net wide, and then knowing who the networks are, not just locally, but on a much bigger scale, so Mm -hmm. that the execution is happening on a national basis as well, not just on a local one. Here in Tijuana, the militarization of the border is affecting not just migrating people, but the local Mexican people who live in Tijuana. We've had helicopters circling overhead day and night for a week, drones flying over our heads as we're inside the camp or standing in the hour to two hour long line for food twice a day. It's a direct parallel to Fortress Europe, pushing its borders further out Mm -hmm. to Mediterranean countries like Greece and Spain and Italy or through the murderous EU-Turkey deal and deals with Libya and Morocco. There's a definite parallel between this migrant exodus and the Palestinian liberation struggle and the Palestinian March of Return. And this is happening at the same time as California, which is the the fifth largest economy in the world, has climate refugees and people killed by the current fires. So... Something that's important to recognize is that this is a permanent condition, especially with the current ecological catastrophe, which is only worsening. And we can't back down to right wing or liberal arguments because borders don't actually prevent violence. They create it. And if you don't support the freedom of movement of human beings, you're not actually left. 
I think one uh, a proactive way that we can draw parallels between these different liberal liberation struggles is letters of support from revolutionary and anti-border groups expressing solidarity with refugees. We can address the drug wars killing Central Americans, draw parallels to the borders and the wars and the counter-revolution killing people in the Middle East and North Africa, and reiterate how our solidarity has to be founded in internationalism. And we have to unequivocally stand against these murderous, racist, imperialist borders, which are murdering tens of thousands of people in the Mediterranean and Mexico. So that's a perfect bridge to actually the next segment we're going to do on this um, with Justin Akers Chacon about the, the socialist case against borders or for open borders. I did want to just say that in terms of what you guys are all saying, that this has been incredibly helpful. Um, I know a lot of our listeners, a lot of people I know are all sort of asking, like, when, how do we go to the border? When do we go to the border? There's people doing delegations. There's a sanctuary caravan organized by the new sanctuary movement here in New York City. There's a labor solidarity statement. I know the Chicago Teachers Union has signed on as a union. The New York State Nurses Association has signed on as a union. Several, I th believe, um, legal aid workers. There's a number of people who've signed on. Uh, the nurses union here in New York City is sending a delegation, is taking volunteer nurses to go to the border. I would also just say that I know a number of yourselves and a number of other people are trying to figure out the best way to mass our forces at the border. Um, and I know there's a lot of impatience to do that. Um, but I think that some of the steps that we're taking now are laying the basis for that bigger sort of solidarity effort and a sort of more, a not just the volunteer support and the humanitarian support, which I think is incredibly urgent and important and being organized, but also the political support of masses of people. And so I think some of the suggestions Fermin made and the stuff that's coming out of the coalition in San Diego and Joe, you continuing to report from Tijuana, um, from the refugee side, I just think will be really important. And we shouldn't just be waiting for that, but like building up our forces wherever we are so that when that call comes, we're able to maximize and leverage um, our forces. And I think that this, you know, the work you guys are doing is kind of laying the, along with so many others, is laying the basis for that. So I really thank you guys for being on. Thank you. of a Patreon drive, which is an attempt to get people uh, to support us monthly. Um, any amount will do, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, or more. Um, a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm really trying to emphasize the whole from each according to their abilities aspect of this. Um, but we are in the midst of a Patreon drive where we are trying to get to 100 um, people supporting us by the end of the year. And we've gone from 44 to 79 patrons in the last six weeks or so. And we're in the final four weeks of that campaign. Our Patreon account is patreon.com slash betteroffredpod. That's patreon.com slash betteroffredpod. Um, and just to give people a sense, the whole point of that is really um, to have people actively engaging with the podcast and supporting it because we really do see this as a collective project and 
And so really what this would do is it helps us get in a position to take the podcast to the next level. We're really appreciating the support we've gotten just in our first seven months of existence. And there's so many things we would like to cover and be able to do, including promotion to a wider audience, traveling to places where our listeners are, traveling to places where struggles are to be able to cover them, upgrading our equipment, possibly being in a soundproof studio to record this so you don't have to constantly be subjected to the sirens of Brooklyn. Um, But there's a lot of things that we're hoping to do and with your support it might be possible so um, go to patreon.com slash better off red pod that's patreon.com slash better off red pod um, and support us if you can uh, we'd really appreciate it oh and i almost forgot we do have goodies for people who do donate um, if you go to the site you'll see that we give out a free haymarket ebook we have a selection of great books by some of our guests that we will send you after you've been a patron for a few months and each month Danny and Eric and I put together a playlist of music from our episodes um, for our patrons so you know they're small goodies but they are goodies that show our support for, for for you guys and what you do so thanks for listening all right so now we're back with Justin Aker Chacon thank you so much for being with us Justin I'm uh, happy to be here yeah um we're really happy to have you too. And, you know, just, we just had this conversation with Fermin and Joe and Claire all about, you know, the experience of what's been happening um, on both sides of the border, but particularly in Mexico city and, and Tijuana. And it, it's sort of, it's a powerful conversation. And I think it, 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 it sets up this conversation well, because it's, it's, it was an interesting moment with this crisis happening for um, Angela Nagel's article coming out saying that actually people on the left should really be, you know, drop, drop our demands for uh, the, the right of, of unfettered migration across borders. In some ways, it's almost like, why are we dignifying this after just listening um, to people talk about, you know, women and children and babies being like hit with tear gas and rubber bullets. But, you know, this is obviously, I think in another sense, this is a key question for our side. And so Angela and Nagel, um, you know, wrote this quote unquote left case against open borders. And you wrote a response, the case against the case against open borders. Um, it looks good in print. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, one sort of question just to start out with is like Angela Nagel is not an immigration expert. Uh, this is not an issue that she covers. I think that people have correctly pointed out that she's something of a troll on these questions. And it's almost like this kind of internet sensation, but like, why do you think it's important to respond to her and to respond to these arguments? She went on Tucker Carlson, like what are the stakes of this debate beyond just sort of, you know, the clickbait titles and the sort of provocation? It's important to respond to Nagel precisely because she went on Tucker Carlson uh, and is trying to sell an idea that, is not a new idea, but it's a dangerous idea, which is to try to cultivate support for the idea uh, that immigration controls are somehow in the interest of left, uh, left-leaning people, uh, but more dangerous that it's in the interest of working class people. And the fact that these ideas are being welcomed onto right-wing uh, publications and right-wing news media shows that this is really just an attempt to to create a platform uh, to sell right-wing ideas. We're at a very dangerous juncture right now politically because there is the growth 
of a global far right that is being organized. And it's being organized in different ways. Uh, but I would say that in the, in the United States, there has been a significant bulwark of opposition to anti-immigrant sentiment in the working class. Uh, and so this, to me, appears to be some kind of way to approach the issue differently, uh, a way uh, in which people can be, I, I think, confused or led to believe that uh, somehow you can actually have a left approach to this, which is not anti-immigrant, uh, is pro-worker, uh, and that uh, and that that will somehow advance the uh, the interest of the working class and somehow advance the interest of immigrants because she's she's selling it as also in the interest of immigrants because ostensibly we're supposed to uh, instead of allowing uh, people to enter into the United States instead of allowing undocumented uh, uh, and refugees and asylum workers we're supposed to concentrate our, our efforts on improving the condition of people in the in the sending countries. But you can't disconnect the two. You can't disconnect the idea uh, of criticizing the policies and practices that are destabilizing uh, and forcing people uh, to, to seek uh, refuge or asylum or, or to move to find opportunities. You can't separate that from the actual population of people who are trying to achieve these things by coming into the country. So, uh, so these, you know, the, both of these sides of the issue have to be taken on. But right now, it's incredibly urgent that we resist and condemn and explain why uh, even left pseudo left wing approaches to immigration restriction are toxic and dangerous. Right. And, and if, you know, we should, we should know, right. This article, the Nagel's article appeared in a, in a conservative publication uh, on the American affairs journal. Let's just get right into the heart of what she's arguing. You know, she's the, the heart of her argument seems to be, look, you can, you know, the, the, the cold hearted truth, you know, is that immigration is objectively lowers, you know, living, living standards, working conditions pay for much of the working class. And that when the left supports, you know, which what she calls open borders, and I think we can get into more, you know, more as this conversation goes on, what open borders is really about and what that means. But that call is we're actually being duped by neoliberalism, you know, and she's really echoing something that Bernie Sanders said a couple years ago when he talked about open borders being a Koch brothers fantasy, you know, that, that it's because it would just about allow untrammeled immigration, which would then she then says will lead to, you know, more divisions in the working class and lowering working class standards. So what, what do you, and, 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 and I think Part of her argument is you can oppose this morally, say it's not the world that you want to live in, but the cold facts are that, you know, you, you look at the history and, and this is sort of the relationship. What do you make of that argument? Well, it's patently false uh, the way that she's arguing it. Don't don't hold back now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think um, I think anybody trying to take on the issue of immigration and labor has to study history. They have to use history as a guide. And it's. It's clear to me that she has very little, if any, understanding of labor history other than a cursory survey uh, cherry picking uh, pieces of information that support, you know, a faulty theory. Um, but, you know, you can't, you know, the first thing that's that's a problem with the way she posits this is that she she talks as if people who've crossed borders and workers are two different things. Right. Um, and, you know. Most people, when they when they think about the history of the United States, they understand that immigration has played a 
a significant role. But really, the history of the working class in this country is a history of immigrants and immigration and people crossing borders. And so, you know, to, to try to distinguish those two, you know, leads leads you to a very blind down a blind alley because uh, because it becomes so abstract that it becomes meaningless. So, for instance, uh, you know, uh, throughout the course of the from the 19th to the 21st century, we've seen that the working class uh, has been made up of a significant portion of people who are immigrants, a significant portion of people who are the children or grandchildren of immigrants, uh, a lot of mixed status type of uh, relationships, family bonds, connections. Uh, you know, so can you so, just can you just explain what mixed status means for folks you may not know? Right. So uh, mixed status can can refer to within uh, within one family. You could have relatives who are undocumented or permanent residents or temporary residents. And you can also have citizens uh, within the same family. It's usually generational. But, uh, you know, uh, but it becomes very complex uh, in terms of how people bring their family across borders um, but the point is, is that the, there's, there's social and intimate interconnections between citizens and, and people who don't have citizenship down to the family level within the working class. So the, the two, to try to extricate, you know, a citizen from immigrant becomes uh, challenging, you know, if you look at it in the, in the broader view. Uh, so roughly 10 to 14% at any given point in time over the last, uh, 150 years of the population has been immigrant. And uh, there's a saying that not all uh, workers are immigrants, but all immigrants are workers, um, you know, when looking at, at labor history. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the first problems. The second problem is, is that with, with the way she posits this argument is that she doesn't actually look at how immigrant workers uh, participate in the labor movement. And uh, every major juncture of the advance of the labor movement in this country has coincided with Im immigrants uh, and immigrants uh, participating in the, uh, the practice of organizing unions, participating in the practice of organizing uh, left-wing political parties, which function within unions. Uh, and really there's a correlation between those two. So it's, it's, it's impossible to also separate immigrant workers from advances uh, in, the, in, the, in the workers' movement and the, and the overall labor movement uh, in, in this country. And then, you know, the one thing that she does try to latch on to is this idea that employers use un, uh, the status of a being undocumented against uh, against uh, workers who are uh, citizens or naturalized. And that's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why we have xenophobia, racism, immigration controls is to is to deprive, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants um, of the right to integrate to have uh, dem basic democratic rights, uh, to to socially integrate, to form bonds and relationships uh, mm -hmm. with people outside of their own uh, family and community. So this is exactly uh, the function, is to prevent the process by which uh, there could be integration, more specifically the organization of unions, more specifically the formation of, of sort of political cultures that unite uh, working class people across you know, racial, ethnic, and and national boundaries, and so that 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 is the function of capitalism, um, and and I would say it's a function of the of the of neoliberalism, mm -hmm. uh, and that's the the way that um, Nagel tries to separate to say that well, this is neoliberalism, this isn't uh, capitalism in in terms of how 
uh, working class people are being exploited, but but it's it's become very fundamental to um, to U.S. capitalism to maintain uh, and perpetuate divisions within the working class. And the most recent way of doing that, and that has expanded greatly since the uh, since the period of the civil rights movement, has been to the function of using uh, depriving citizenship rights as a way to to uh, create uh, a larger population of people who don't have basic democratic rights, who don't have freedom of movement, and ultimately uh, are subject to the control of their employers. Right. And one of the points you make in the article is that it's not the immigration status per se, but it is the criminalization and control of immigrants that has that function of lowering wages or depressing, you know, making more of a threat to people being able to organize. And Danny and I were talking about it earlier and saying, you know, drawing a parallel like Barbara Fields um, talks about how it's not like the fact of someone being black that causes them to be the victim of police brutality. It's the racism that is the fact that causes police brutality. And similarly with immigrants, there's not something inherent in being an immigrant that makes, you know, that creates these conditions. It's what the state does to immigrants and it's the criminalization and enforcement, which right, I think- Right, or there's not jobs that are inherently good paying or bad paying, right? right. It's the level of organization and, you know, struggle right. that's gone into defining how those jobs are going to be paid. Right, absolutely. I mean, no one thought like an auto worker in the 30s was like this right. prestigious job that required the highest wages. And no one thinks that anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, Jen and I are going on a rant, but please, please, Justin, join us. <laughs> and the other thing that you talk about in your article, um, and you got at this in terms of the militancy and the role that labor, ha- uh, immigrant labor has played, is that actually conversely, when there was the amnesty, the first amnesty program and like, what was it, 2.5 million people um, were granted amnesty, that you actually saw a surge in labor militancy. Yes, exactly. So this is, you know, when I talk about there being a correlation between waves of immigrants, uh, class formation and the and class uh, organization and militancy, this has uh, been the latest phase of it, which is, uh, you know, increased uh, migration from uh, Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean, uh, you know, in the, in the period after uh, the era of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of changes in immigration law and and other factors, you know, um, uh, that have driven people to migrate. Uh, but the, the important thing to understand about uh, 1980 uh, prior to 1986, when that bill was passed, is that there has been extensive study to show that prior to that period and prior to criminalization, there was not a substantial difference in wages. Between you know, in, in the same type of work between citizen and non-citizen worker. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a book about the about farm work written by uh, Frank Bardacki called Trampling Out the Vintage, in which he talks about how in the 60s and 70s, especially as union you know, with the aiding of, of, of unionization, but but just because it, it, uh, farm work wasn't as criminalized at that point, that farm workers made enough to buy a home, farm workers could make enough to buy a car. They could send their kids, you know, uh, they can have better opportunities for their kids. Uh, you know, so this this idea that the undocumented workers have, you know, always been this sort of low tiered, you know, they've always, you know, uh, been very separate in terms of the type of work they do and how much they get paid. Really, that's a recent more of a recent phenomenon. And so um, and so the the research of, you know, understanding what happened in 1986 is that. There was a there were two things. One is that uh, there was an immigrant rights movement uh, 
around the time of, uh, of this bill, uh, the bill which um, is going to be passed in 1986 is a bipartisan bill. It's called the, the Simpson-Mazzoli bill. And there was a, a, you know, basically there was a big push uh, coming from an immigrant rights work, uh, immigrant workers movement that was pushing for amnesty. And at that time, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of Republican Party, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, and even the Democratic Party uh, were beginning to think about more of increasing criminalization uh, of immigration as a negotiating tool to sort of pass a bill that could include this amnesty and um, and the beginnings of the sort of modern, more recent uh, epic of, of criminalization. So the amnesty was matched with the idea that employers will now have the, the requirement to report workers who are undocumented through social security checks. Mm-hmm. Um, And so this is a very interesting sort of bifurcation because on the one hand, the legalization of over 2.5 million people was very significant for understanding the way that the organized labor movement has grown since 1986, uh, especially in those industries where undocumented workers were able, where they already had experience in in, in the job, they already had uh, some organizing experience. They had formed relationships through the unions. The legalization uh, opened up the possibility uh, for this group to now organize large numbers of people within unions like, uh, you know, what what ha- the union uh, Unite Here, which was used to be two unions, but now it's merged. A number of unions that that began to thrive and grow dramatically because of the uh, the the combination of immigrant working worker organizers and the legalization, which brought a lot of workers, you know, now out into the open who now have the ability to join unions without, uh, you know, without the consequences of being um, uh, detained or deported. The other side of that, of course, is uh, this idea of employers, uh, uh, employers having to require Social Security checks. And uh, there was a lot of opposition from the from the employers in this country. The, the capitalists really were divided on this issue, uh, but what resolved it was the, the the bill itself contains a clause that suspends uh, the requirement of em- of employers to have to actually report how many uh, people they're reporting or, or firing. So basically, it said uh, you're required to do this, but there's there's going to be no mechanism that's going to re- that's going to hold you accountable for not doing it, uh-huh. and so. It created the conditions in which mm-hmm. uh, very few uh, employers were actually, you know, uh, uh, being required uh, to to use this. And then it also contained, more importantly, the, the the stipulation that it wasn't the employer's responsibility to prove whether documents that were being used were actual legal documents or not. So uh, it let the employers off the hook, absolutely. And so because of that, there was a shift amongst employers to say this, this can actually be good. And what ended up happening was uh, the employers became a wing of immigration enforcement in the sense that they would fire workers that they didn't want who were undocumented. But more significantly, they would use it as an anti-union right. tool mm-hmm. in, which, in which they would lay off workers who in any way were di- disaffected and threatening to act on that or – uh, if if actual union drives were were being organized, so this was this has become a fairly common phenomenon, and it only has to happen once in a while that employers will lay off a un, uh, a workforce that is trying to unionize. 
because then that sends chills through the whole right. uh, population of workers that if they try to do that, uh, it'll happen. So, so coming out of that period, um, employers were held not held to any standards of having to uh, demonstrate how they're using this. They use it to their advantage. Uh, there were very few sanctions. Uh, and, and more importantly, the opposition to employer sanctions dropped. And, uh, and then the next stage of this was to then begin to say, uh, we, want, uh, we want to focus on bringing in guest workers, like as a, as, as a way to now, uh, instead of another legalization, we want guest workers because the legalization backfired because it, it led to the growth of the union movement, because it led to a, a, a period of expanded militancy and organization. Um, and so, and so that's where we begin to see the, the, the articulation of the idea of like, okay, how can we get workers here, but not workers who are on a path to citizenship, not workers who are going to, uh, you know, be able to uh, uh, organize. And so the temporary or guest worker, what used to be called the Bracero program, is kind of an extension of the idea of having uh, labor control without workers having the ability to integrate and have democratic rights. I just want to follow up on, on, on that history you gave too, because so one of the things that Nagel in, in her article advocates is, you know, greater e-verify programs and, and, and measures for, again, which she po- you know posits as this won't hurt immigrants, this will just go after employers. But part of the history you go through, which I think is almost, is so little known, is you, you talk about before 86, right, when there, these criminalization measures weren't in place, they're not being significant differences, you know, once you factor in for education levels, I'm sure, and all this kind of stuff, you know, between undocumented workers and documented workers. But then not only post 86 and this kind of criminal, this, these tools of criminalization being given to employers, does it lead to, you know, a, a bigger gap between um, undocumented and, and native born workers, but industries then where lots of undocumented workers work, you see actually a decline in pay and working conditions for all workers, right? So it's actually the very opposite of, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but the, the very thing that Nagel is saying, well, you know, whether, whatever you think of the morality of it, this is, this is good class politics helping, you know, Ameri- quote unquote American workers. Actually, there's a, there's a clear record in the last 30 years of this being bad, not just for undocumented workers, but all workers. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, she's she's latching on to the idea that because employers use uh, undocumented immigrants to le- leverage down wages, you know, therefore we should get rid of undocumented workers. Um, it's it's completely false because it's her whole premise is false because she she's she she states that there is this kind of a you know a class of capitalists who she identifies as neoliberals or globalists who are for open borders. Uh, and it, it's absolutely not true. They're for, they're for access to workers, but they're not, they're for access to people who cross borders, but they're not for access to people to have citizenship rights and into, and be integrated into our society. Incre- incredibly so, re- regulated and repressive borders is, is actually right. what they're for. Right. And, and, you know, uh, so the idea that somehow capital is going to stop doing that, right? Uh, it's it's a fantasy because right. it's so integrated into our capitalist system. Therefore, it leads her to then draw right wing conclusions, which mm-hmm. which you know she. This is what's so difficult about reading her article. I mean, it 
it makes her head spin <laughs> because she draws very right wing conclusions that are virtually indiscernible from what the far right says. So she sets up a kind of argument about how we should look at this from the left, but then how we should do what the far right is doing. Um, and and that's, you know, there's a history of that in this country. There's a history of this kind of reactionary populism mm -hmm. uh, that combines a kind of pseudo critique of capitalism mm -hmm. uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, that we that capitalism uh, uses immigrant labor that uses these things against us. Uh, and therefore, we should oppose capitalism and uh, and Im immigration. But if you look at every single example of how this has ever happened, it always ends with, therefore, uh, you know, we're not going to fight capitalism. We're going to fight immigration, right? And it, it's always a there's always a trap door in which the the critique of capitalism ends with, you know, you know, falling into this idea that you know. What we can, what we're actually trying to do is stop immigration. It was that way with the Chinese, you know, with the Chinese in the 19th century, uh, you know, with the Japanese at the turn of the 20th century, and virtually every phase of this in labor history, uh, it's ended with just a, a kind of convergence with right-wing forces, and, and you know, so so capitalism is, I would say, more than ever dependent on this kind of these kind of mechanisms for uh, super exploitation of labor of undocumented uh, immigrant labor. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then leverage uses that to leverage down wages for all workers. Um, and it's not going to change, you know? And so, um, so, so the, the argument is then that, that we should organize the undocumented workers um, and take away the ability of capitalists to then leverage downward wages. But if we're, if we're organized collectively, then we have more power to, to lift all wages uh, more easily, you know, in, in terms of how uh, the, the scale of organization that that could create. And that's been the history of labor. That's been the history of how right. labor has made advances. So I, I want to get into this question of like one of the things you're sort of getting at is that Nagel and and she's not the only one like. You know, I think these arguments also do have a resonance on an emerging left that is trying to understand globalization, that's dealing with the questions of refugees, migration, the EU, et cetera. And Nagel sort of positions herself as the realistic alternative, right? Like she's the one who's just being realistic about what things look like. And what you're kind of getting at is that actually she's the utopian because the idea that the left could in some way control capital's ability to migrate around the world and control borders and do all the rest of that and have a and have a working class border policy. Um, it seems to me the, the utopian policy and what you're pointing to is the more realistic policy. I mean, another aspect of this that I want to ask you about is like Danny's asked this question a couple of times, like, well, yes, morally, but the hard truth is how how do you respond also to the question that this is it's just moralism to talk about like that the left is just being moralistic by like, you know, invoking the plight of refugees and talking about the conditions of migrants and, you know, appealing to the heartstrings of people who are watching children being tear gassed at the border. And that's just a moralistic position. Like how, how would, how would you respond to that? And she says that this is like, this moralism is a new thing of the left that's sort of born of this kind of immaturity and harkens back to this different kind of left that was somehow more hard boiled or something like that. How well, I think, I think there's a ton of class baiting in that too, right? Yes. You know? Yes. It's just this middle-class left right. who doesn't really have to whatever. Um, but how would you respond to that? Well, I think the, 
I think the the left in this country. I mean, if you if you look at history, uh, being in a in a society at the center of an imperial <laughs> capitalist system uh, has drawn. You know, the left had drawn conclusions very early on that um, that we can't just have a national opposition to capitalism, uh, and that we have to begin to look. Uh, at the way capitalism functions internationally, and I know, uh, you know, I did, I did talk about how in the early 20th century, uh, I think it's in my book, uh, Radicals in the Barrio, the the, the Socialist Party uh, was pulled in different directions on this question, um, and the the left wing of the Socialist Party began to understand that uh, that the ability of capital to uh, exploit workers on this side of the border was tied to its ability to exploit workers in Mexico and that mm-hmm. uh, that opposition to a system that crosses borders uh, ne- necessitates some degree of unity and solidarity across borders uh, in order to uh, to build a movement capable uh, you know of of uh, improving the conditions of the working class so so there's a very material basis uh, by which the left you know uh, ha- you know ha- has historically sunk Roots in working class uh, struggle, you know, that trend transcends borders with this understanding. Uh, and so I don't think she really knows much about the left. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out on what basis um, her she has credentials that put her on the left. Um, but but she seems to like not know much about about uh, about uh, history. The history of the of the stru- of the struggles of the working class or the left, and as I as I touched on in, in my article, um, she th- there is a very s- deep and strong history of the left advocating uh, for an act and 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 acting against policies that have been destructive uh, to people uh, across the border uh, across borders. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I expressed some of those, but she seems to be very ignorant of that. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too. What a wonderful world this would be. Don't know much about geography. Don't know much trigonometry. Don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a slide rule is for. But I do know what it one is too. And if this one could be with you, what a wonderful world this would be. So, so there is a moral, there is a moral aspect to this. There's no doubt about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, uh, watching people get, watching, you know, people get tear gassed, families get tear gassed. I mean, who, you should be outraged about that, you know? And, right. Um, and, but, but, you know, there's also the understanding that like, if, if we want to rebuild a labor movement, if we want to actually build, uh, you know, a left in the society, if we want to actually have, uh, the the capacity to challenge uh, the policies of not only Trumpism but you know the policies of, of the ruling class that have you know uh, created economic crises have uh, you know led us into uh, uh, interminable wars. I mean, we have to 
build a working class organization that understands itself uh, and uh, and is able to to organize opposition to the kind of policies, first of all, that divide us, but second of all, allow for uh, you know the, the the kind of policies internationally that are pushing us towards the brink. Mm-hmm. So uh, exactly. you know she she doesn't want to en- engage in any of that. Um, uh, you know it, it seems like she wants to get some publicity. <laughs> um, but I would really challenge her to, you know, to, to, to try to learn a little bit about the history of the left and the, and the working class. I guess that would be <laughs> my, rec- my recommendation. Your recommendation. <laughs> um, so we're getting towards the end of this interview, but I wanted to finish up with the question. So, um, Nagel ends, uh, I think she ends her piece by saying something like no serious left party has any program for open borders. And, and, you know, that, that, speaks to a larger question that I hear all the time about well, what does it mean practically to be against borders or to be for open borders, which I think is, you know, and, and I'll just say for myself, I think um, open, you know, being against borders is a starting point of a left. It's around principle. And then from there, you actually figure out what does that mean for the next steps? But I want to get your thoughts about what do you think it means for there is a debate on the left. We had a discussion with Leandros Fischer a couple weeks uh, weeks ago around German politics and the debates on the German left around migration and, and the stance on borders. This is a live question for the left around the world. For those of us, and there are many of us who want to fight for an internationalist left, you know, that sees borders as fundamentally dividing the working class. What does that mean? What What is our realism, right? What are we, what do you think this can look like for, you know, uh, uh, practically in terms of how it actually guides what we're doing today, but also what we're doing, you know, where we want to be five years from now, 10 years ago, as we build, you know, forces that are actually, um, you know, ha- have more, more, more power and social weight. Well, I think it's important to put uh, Nagel in the context of what's actually happening in order to answer that question. Um, um, you know, uh, the, you know, we're we're starting to see more of the kind of uh, the the sort of intellectual shift, uh, and especially within the the leaders of political parties that you know that we would otherwise characterize as liberal or centrist, towards an accommodation to mm-hmm. uh, the rising right wing, uh, you know, right populism and fascism internationally. Uh, and so I think that would be a starting point for how I, I would argue this. And just to give some examples, I think, um, you know, within within a few days, I don't know if she got the memo before, and <laughs> but within a few days of, of Nagel's uh, article, there was the, uh, you know, the the announcement of Hillary Clinton doing a tour uh, with uh, Tony Blair and uh, and uh, you know uh, a few others uh, across Europe to basically uh, advise. Uh, the ruling classes there, uh, and you know, and of course, uh, people who are upset and shocked and angry about the rise of populism, to advise them that they should embrace a kind of softer version of uh, of right wing anti immigration uh, politics. Uh, and you know, if we go back a little bit, Angela Merkel or Angela Merkel, excuse me, um, back in July, uh, also sort of caved in to the right wing of her coalitions uh, and and decided that uh, they were not going to allow refugees and asylum seekers to enter, uh, you know, freely, that they were going to hold them in uh, refugee centers or what they call transit centers on the border, kind of like what Trump is trying to do. Mm-hmm. It's technically legal. And the expectation is for people to get to the point of entry um, in order to apply for asylum. But, you know, by keeping them in uh, essentially in Mexico as 
using Mexico as a refugee camp. So, so there's more. Uh, just a few days ago in Australia, the Labour Party uh, agreed to a policy of making uh, uh, delaying access to welfare services for immigrants for four years. I could go on and on. So this is a shift, and we see this kind of liberal uh, capitulation to it. But I also think it's important in the context of the United States to understand that this is a bipartisan project. But because the Democratic Party does not have a kind of fixed foundation for which to oppose the general will of the capitalist class, they tend to be pulled to the right when, when, you know, when the right wing moves right. And so with the international context, you know, we've seen the rise of Trumpism. We see uh, you know, this idea of, uh, of more immigration restriction. And we see the intensification of policies um, through Obama to, to Trump. So, so what does it mean to then say uh, uh, open borders in this context? While we know that open borders for, capital, for, this, for the capitalist class means restricted, controlled, criminalized, subjugated labor. So open borders, I think, uh, for the real left um, is to confront the militarization, the criminalization, all of the factors that have, that have built up the, the kind of uh, infrastructure of, of immigration uh, repression to confront them directly so, and to oppose them, to oppose them outright. So building a movement that demands that all of the Central American uh, refugees and asylum seekers be let in mm -hmm. is a radical demand uh, in, in the face of a highly militarized, highly Absolutely. violent society. Uh, uh, excuse me, a uh, border and, and, you know, in the attempt to make that, um, to amplify that, uh, dismantling the border ultimately begins by saying we should, we should fight for everybody to be able to cross it. Already capital can cross it. Already most uh, categories of wealthy people can cross it. Really the border only exists for working people. So by, so, so by arguing that the border, that people should be allowed to cross it is arguing against the, the border as it actually is. Furthermore, the abolition of ICE. This is a, a manifestation of the most recent phase of, of immigrant uh, repression, the internal repression. This is now like kind of like a, a, a supplement to the employer-based control of the workplace. Now there's basically a, a Gestapo-like organization that, that is selectively targeting people. The abolition of ICE would be uh, a fundamental uh, step in the direction of dismantling this immigration enforcement mechanism. Uh, the detention industry, you know, right now there's the beginnings of a uh, of a campaign of dis uh, divestment, uh, you know, calling attention to how this is a for profit system and how basically this is an aspect of how capitalism is now functioning, which is to profit off uh, off of the incarceration of uh, of, of immigrants alongside um, people of color and uh, you know in the, in the in the other prison systems that we have. So. So these are the demands, I think, that are the starting point for ultimately building the kind of movement that has the capacity to, to, not, to not only beat back these, these aspects of, uh, of, of, of immigrant, immigrant repression, but then to create the kind of conditions in which people can then articulate an alternative to that, mm -hmm. an, an alternative that basically uh, uh, shows how we need the, the freedom of movement, we need international solidarity, and we ultimately need a society that, that isn't contingent upon the violent subjugation of large sections of the population in, in order uh, so that a few people can, be, can make profit while the rest of us, um, you know, uh, suffer from the consequences. Right. I mean, that, that's fantastic and seems like a good place to stop. I'll just 
I'll say that I'm reminded of Leandros Fisher. We keep coming back to him. Um, he made this point about how the the right wing has these inverted utopias and we have to provide our vision. And I think that what you just said about like a world in which we're not held hostage to this tiny minority of people who make profit and control our movements. It's like the left has more to gain from putting forward a bold vision um, around the question of borders than it does trying to cramp its its strategies around the crevices of, you know, what the ruling class is doing. And I think you just did a great job of laying all that out. Yeah. And I think you laid out a lot of demands that sound quite practical and hands on yes. to me for, for people who have the politics of open borders, um, yeah. as opposed to being for E-Verify. I just want to add one point because we didn't get to it. Um, Nagel makes a point that we're supposed to believe that most people feel that it's uh, kind of a, it's almost like uh, instinctual that that the working class opposes immigration, mm -hmm. and and I just I just want to point out that this is nothing could be uh, further from the truth. Right. Um, and this last election cycle, despite all its contradictions and you know all the all the complexities of it, was a uh, in terms of uh, voting was a was a clear renunciation of the of the of the anti-immigrant right. Um, you know, and so. Uh, many of the hardcore anti-immigrant politicians, just like back in 2006, after the after the mass march, strike, and boycott of the immigrant rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, it it registered at the polls in the defeat of the of the most uh, right wing uh, elements um, uh, who, who who position their campaigns around anti-immigration, such as Chris Kobach, you know, from from, uh, from running for governor of Kansas. So. I just want to I just want to really make sure that that point is clear is that there is the the in a in a in a society in in the United States where the two the two political parties have differences but they they tend to be united on the idea of immigrant immigration repression the bulwark of opposition has been the people mm -hmm. has been the people against the you know uh and it expresses itself um uh over and over again even under the most uh, uh you know uh extreme conditions that we're now facing under under Trump so uh, so that's a force that has to be reckoned with as well. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there, Eric just pointed out to me, like the polls showing that 60 to 70 percent of people support immigration, either increasing or staying as it is. Um, but actually a tiny minor, not tiny, but a minority of people who are for reducing immigration. And I also think when you say the people have been the bulwark, there's also an incredibly rich history on the left of that of of that basic principle of internationalism. And I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I kind of want to end this episode with a quote from Eugene Debs because he's held up so much as a model of socialism today. And, you know, and rightly so, but sometimes people and, don't And the have person who won over large sections of native born American workers to socialism. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, the guy who took it from being popular among American immigrant working class to as well, the native born working class. Right. And a lot of times you don't actually hear the most revolutionary words of Eugene Debs. Um, but I think he has something um, that fits Angela Nagel very well. He says, if socialism, international revolutionary socialism does not stand staunchly, unflinchingly and uncompromisingly for the working class and for the exploited and oppressed masses of all lands, then it stands for none. And its claim is a false pretense and its profession, a delusion and a snare. Let those desert us who will because we refuse to shut the international door in the faces of our own brethren. We will be none the weaker, but all the stronger for their going. 
for they evidently have no clear conception of the international solidarity, are wholly lacking in revolutionary spirit, and have no proper place in the socialist movement while they entertain such aristocratic notions of their own assumed superiority. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> and I definitely thought of Angela Nagel when I, when I read that. So um, I just wanted to share that with our listeners. Well, okay, Justin, thank, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. This is a great conversation. My pleasure. I'm glad to have joined you. Yeah, and listeners should definitely check out our other, we have two other episodes um, with Justin Akers, Chacon, talking about the politics of the border, as well as your book, Radicals in the Barrio, um, which might be a good place for um, Nagel and others to start learning the history that you he, were talking about. He's like about. the Alec Baldwin to our Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I don't get that joke. Yeah, oh, I get Frank, it. Recurring character. Guest, yeah. Got it. <laughs> He's Steve Martin. Anyways, okay. Anyway, cool. thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for being Justin. on. You're bullying, you're talking, trying to save yourself, but no one seems to care. All right, that's this week's episode of Better Off Red. Thanks so much for listening. To stay in the loop about how to plug into solidarity actions on the border and to contribute materially to organizations doing solidarity work, check out socialistworker.org and internationalsocialist.org regularly. We will have continuing coverage there of activist efforts that we're involved in. As for the songs in this episode, we started with Residente singing La Catedra. Then there was Shakira, Me Enamore followed by Chicano Batman with a modern rendition of the classic This Land is Your Land. Then we had Sam Cooke, What a Wonderful World, and this is Ozo Motley singing Don't Mess with the Dragon. If you can, take a moment to go to patreon.com slash betteroffredpod and become a monthly sustainer. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Better Off Red. Better Off Red.